Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. In this talk, Comrade Marcus discusses the Marxist analysis of history, historical materialism, and how it can help to guide the struggles of today. So the most common uh, view of history, I'd argue, is that society is driven primarily through ideas. You know, historical shifts come through changes mainly in how we think. Now, think about how we learned capitalism came into existence. We're sort of taught that one get, one day some guy thought, hey, why don't people hire workers to make things and then go on to sell those things? And then the whole world collectively smacked themselves on the head and thought, damn, you know, why didn't I think of that? That's a pretty good idea. Um, but this is a totally arbitrary view of history once you really begin to look at it. This perspective can't explain why these ideas came to be in the first place, uh, nor how they managed to become the predominant ideas in society. Now, if capitalism did just come about through an idea and nothing more, uh, then why didn't it come about a thousand years earlier, or a thousand years later for that matter? Why did anyone think of capitalism at all? Is it all totally accidentally? And are you really telling me that millions of people just suddenly decided to stop living the way they had been for thousands of years just because someone had an idea? I think this point of view uh, creates more questions than it really does answers. Now, the uh, other main trend of history today is one that we've seen mostly come out of uh, postmodernist circles. It essentially states that history is a totally random series of events and that there isn't really any rhyme or reason why things happen at all. I think this point of view is best summarized, uh, not necessarily by any postmodernists, but the business tycoon Henry Ford, when he said that history is just one damn thing after another. Now, far from just, I think, being ridiculous on a surface level, uh, this idea is also very, very dangerous. If there's no reason why history happens the way that it does, uh, then there's no way we can possibly understand it. And if we can't understand it, then there's no way we can actually change it. it. If things happen for no reason, then there's no way you can make an impact on history. It's a totally defeatist point of view. It really teaches you that capitalism exists for no reason, and there's nothing we can ever do to stop it. So, you know, why bother even trying? Now, this is fundamentally where Marxism differs. Marxism throws out all the old, arbitrary ideas of history and strives towards an objective, scientific understanding of how society progresses. And we understand that the natural world follows certain natural laws down to every single atom, so why wouldn't the same fact be true for humanity? Now, Marx makes the point that society, as well as its prevailing ideas, uh, changes with the development of our material conditions. Now, he's not a Marxist, but I think we can explain this more easily by taking a look at Charles Darwin. Uh, Mark actu Marx actually took a, a great deal of influence from Darwin. Uh, actually, a fun fact, he wanted to dedicate his first volume of Capital to, to, capital to him, but uh, Darwin turned it down. Now, Marx considered his Origin of the Species to be a, a really revolutionary document, not just because it was you know, hated by the establishment and slandered, uh, but because it revolutionized everything people understood about science uh, up until that point. Now, in the same way, 
that Darwin rooted the development of the of species in their interaction with the natural world, uh, Marx explained that a socio-economic systems arise in a very similar way. Uh, Marx ex- uh, Engels sums this up very well in a speech he gave at Marx's graveside. He said, and I quote, uh, just as Darwin discovered the law of development or of organic nature, so Marx discovered the law of development of human history. The simple fact, hitherto concealed by an overgrowth of ideology, that mankind must first of all eat, drink, have shelter and clothing before it can pursue politics, science, art, religion, etc. Now to break down what he's really saying here, uh, what Marx theorizes is that labor lays the basis for human society. Before humans can think, they need to secure the necessities of life, and how these necessities are secured is going to go on to shape the rest of our society. Now, if you've ever heard of the concept of the uh, base and the superstructure, um, it's an easy way to understand this concept. Economics serves as the uh, base of society, while politics, culture, religion, and, and so on are part of the superstructure that comes from the base. Now, for example, in capitalist society, our society, uh, the necessities of life are owned by the capitalists, and the rest of us need to work for them in exchange for the things we need to survive. Now, this uh, very basic relationship of boss and worker impacts every single corner of our society. Now, most people uh, live with this idea that this is just how things have always been. I've heard some people call it the uh, Flintstones effect, uh, because, you know, you're even watching the show about cavemen and they're still living in what is essentially a capitalist society. Now, obviously, this is a bit of a, a funny example, but that mood really is that gripping. The social structure that people live in at a certain time is going to feel dominating and inescapable, and that has profound effects on our culture. Now, this idea that humanity starts from labor has been actually verified by modern science in really a quite literal way. Engels, you know, using this method, uh, made the argument that what fundamentally sets us apart from other animals is our ability to perform labor. We evolved with upright posture and opposable thumbs, uh, both of which allowed us to use tools. Through the use of tools, our brains developed, and as our brains developed, we were able to invent more sophisticated tools, uh, which became the sort of feedback loop where, to the same extent our brains grew, our labor became more sophisticated, and vice versa. This is really what made humans as intelligent as we are today and, and set us apart from the animal kingdom. Now, today, uh, this theory is pretty widely accepted among biologists and anthropologists. It's uh, generally known to scientists as gene culture coevolution. The uh, world-famous anthropologist Stephen Jay Gould once said that Engels made, and I quote, the best 19th century case for gene culture coevolution. So, in a very literal sense, mankind starts from the place of labor. Now, there are some uh, very important conclusions that flow from this. This means that the development of the productive forces, that is, the development of tools, technology, and the working class itself, so on and so forth, uh, becomes the basis for change in how society is, is organized. As we develop new ways to secure the necessities of life, then the rest of society needs to reshape itself around those changes. 
Now, it's the same way that armies needed to reshape themselves around developments in uh, military technology. Generals today aren't, you know, practicing medieval warfare, typically, I don't think. Uh, the advent of uh, guns, bombs, and tanks fundamentally changed how these things need to operate. Now, uh, one very popular idea that this all cuts across is a so-called human nature. You know, if you consider yourself a socialist, uh, then you've definitely heard the argument that socialism is impossible because it goes against human nature. Humans are just inherently greedy and selfish and competitive, and all of this makes a socialist economy uh, just unrealizable. Now, this uh, seems like a powerful concept when you first hear it, but the Marxist view of history totally debunks it. The reality is that there is no fixed human nature that exists rigidly across time. The way that we live and interact with each other as humans has changed dramatically over the centuries, and these changes are fundamentally rooted in changes of production. Now, how can you speak of human nature when our lives look incompatible with how humans lived uh, just a few thousand years ago? You know, why is something like slavery so appalling to us now but not that long ago, was was accepted as as, as normal. Now, the the Russian Marxist Plekhanov once wrote that human nature can no longer be regarded as the final and most general cause of historical progress. If it is constant, then it cannot explain the extremely changeable course of history. If it is changeable, then obviously its changes are themselves determined by historical progress. Now, there haven't been any fundamental changes in our biology since humans have existed, so you can't make that argument. The only explanation is that what we call human nature is something that changes through time depending on different circumstances. The proof of this is that many notions that we take as granted now are actually a very recent developments. Now take, for example, um, economic class. We take the existence of rich and poor people as a given, uh, but humans haven't always lived in class society. As a matter of fact, it's uh, really just a blip in the grander scheme of things. For the majority of our existence, humans lived nomadic, hunter-forager, tribal groups that Marx described as a primitive communist. Now, these were egalitarian communities that existed entirely off of cooperation. Private property was restricted to petty personal items, and everything else was held between everyone in common. Well, actually, while the vast majority of these societies no longer exist, um, there still are groups living in this form of early communism, which gives us an idea of how our ancestors probably lived. Take, for example, the uh, Kung tribe in southern Africa. The uh, uh, anthropologist Richard Lee has some uh, really fascinating writing on them, which I'm going to quote briefly here. Um, he wrote down that the Kung have no chiefs and no leaders. Problems in their society are mostly solved long before they mature into anything that threatens social harmony. People's conversations are common property, and disputes are readily diffused through communal bannering. No one gives orders or takes them. Richard Lee once asked a Kung man whether the Kung have headmen. Of course we have headmen, he replied, much to Richard Lee's surprise. In fact, we are all headmen. Each of one is a headman over himself. Now, uh, this form of living uh, doesn't just come from the cultural notions of these groups, uh, but again, the very opposite. 
it all comes back to production. Under primitive communism, the level of technique is too low to produce a surplus. That means people generally only produce enough to sustain themselves. Without this economic surplus, there can't be um, any talk about inheritable wealth or exploitation, which makes uh, class society just impossible. Now, all this changed with the development of agriculture. For the first time ever, humans were able to produce a reliable surplus uh, just by working a single piece of land. The Neolithic Revolution really was a revolution in more than just name. It completely changed the relations of human production, uh, society, and culture as we know it. As a matter of fact, uh, Gordon Child, the anthropologist who coined the term, uh, was a Marxist himself. Uh, so he really meant it as a revolution in the way that we would define it. Now, since uh, humans were able to secure sustenance from a single piece of land, uh, they no longer needed to constantly migrate, which created the first human settlements. And this is where notions of land ownership uh, first came into being. You know, if you're constantly moving around from place to place, land ownership just isn't a concept that makes any sense. Both agriculture became a necessity. If everyone is making their living as a farmer, then you need you just need some way to divide up the land. Communal now, that being said, communal land ownership um, still persisted even at this point, and private land, you know, land just owned by a single person uh, didn't come until much later, but you can still see how the seeds of private property were already sown. Now, in a similar sense to how agriculture uh, served as the basis for land ownership, it also gave rise to the first class divisions. Humans were, again, producing a surplus, but they weren't producing enough of it to go around to everybody. This meant that it all went to a small layer of people who were freed from the need to perform physical labor and rose above the rest of society. Now, this is a fundamentally what constituted the first ruling class. This is why you don't see any evidence of kings in, in very early human history. But starting in around uh, you know, 3000 BC, give or take, you suddenly had kingdoms and empires popping up all over the place. The class struggle under all forms of class society is essentially reducible to opposing economic classes fighting for this surplus. Now, this is what Marx meant when he said that the history of all hitherto society has been the history of class struggle. What this means is that class struggle isn't something that's eternal or fixed, and it's not the product of some abstract, omnipotent human nature, but rather it's the result of productive development. Now, the rise of class society um, is a very contradictory process. It's oppressive and was based on the disenfranchisement of the majority of people, but it also advanced society forward. Because this ruling class was freed from performing uh, manual labor, they were left to develop mental labor. That is, they could uh, spend their time thinking and developing things like science, the arts, philosophy. Class society creates what most people would describe as you know, civilization. Now, Aristotle summarizes pretty clearly when he said that man begins to philosophize when the means of life are provided. Now, this was a uh, 
effectively him admitting that he needed slave labor um, in order to be a philosopher. He was also one of the first people to point out that the uh, ancient Egyptians, Egyptians, excuse me, were able to create math uh, precisely because their rulers didn't need to work. So in that sense, class society was progressive. Now, I don't mean that in any kind of moral way. You know, we don't support class society or apologize for its crimes. We are communists after all. Uh, but it was progressive in the sense that it increased society's understanding of the world and our control over nature. Now, class society is contradictory because it's advanced humanity as a whole forward, but through the increased subjugation and oppression of the majority. Well, the uh, position of the whole of mankind has increased. The relative position of the lower classes is kept very, very low. Now, precisely because of this, it's only through class society that you see the rise of the state. Under primitive communism, when all property is held in common and everyone lives equal to each other, there's no need for a state or police or military. People work issues out through cooperation and mediation. But the transition into class society is, it's not a peaceful process. In order to keep the oppressed classes oppressed, the special, the ruling class needs to create the state to keep them in line. That is, the, the ruling class needs to create, as uh, Lenda described them, uh, special armed bodies of men and women um, in order to maintain their power. This is fundamentally the role of things like uh, police and, and, and jails. Engels describes this process in Origin of the Family. To quote him here, he said uh, that the state is a product of society at a certain stage of development. It is the admission that this society has become entangled in an insoluble contradiction with itself, that it has split into irreconcilable antagonisms, which it is powerless to dispel. But in order that these antagonisms and classes with conflicting economic interests might not consume themselves and society in fruitless struggle, it became necessary to have a power seemingly standing above society that would alleviate the conflict and keep it within the bounds of order. And this power, arisen out of society, replacing itself above it and alienating, alienating itself more and more from it, is the state. I think this general process that I've just outlined here um, shows how economics does drive society forward. Primitive communism exists when people don't produce enough to support a ruling class. Agriculture creates these conditions for ruling class, which in turn creates the basis for math, science, and philosophy. Economic development, therefore, becomes the basis for cultural development, and changes in production become the basis for changes in our political system. Now, uh, on this basis, uh, people sometimes criticize Marxism for being a uh, economic fatalists or you know, class reductionists. Critics will uh, paint this image of Marxism that believes things happen purely and mechanically just from economic shifts. Now, they'll say that Marxism asserts economics as the only thing that can have an effect and is the only thing that matters. Now, this is totally false. It's a total distortion of Marxism. Both Marx and Engels actually explicitly argued against this idea. 
Now, according to Engels, uh, the materialist conception of history, uh, the ultimate determining element in history, is the production and reproduction of life. More than this, neither Marx and I have ever asserted. Hence, if somebody twists this into saying that the economic element is the only determining one, he transforms that proposition into a meaningless, abstract, and senseless phrase. Now, the relationship between, again, uh, economics and, and, and politics is, is much more complex than critics of Marxism would uh, like you to believe. There's an organic link between the two, and they act as a sort of feedback loop where both shape and go on to affect one another. It's totally possible for politics and the state to affect economics. Revolutions are bare proof of this. Oftentimes, the existing political structure becomes a barrier on economic development, and a new system has to arise to take its place. But that's not something that happens automatically. It requires forceful political intervention. I think a, a really great example of this is the French Revolution. Now, it, even before capitalism had time to fully solidify itself, uh, many forms, many of its economic forms were already taking shape. In the cities of, of you know, feudal Europe, you saw the rise of an early bourgeoisie that mainly existed as merchants and early industrialists. Now, they had begun developing the early forms of capitalism, but they found every step of the way that the aristocracy was a barrier on this development. On one hand, the feudal lords had special privileges that made trading very difficult. For example, if you're a French merchant and you wanted to trade on the other side of the country, you would first have to pay multiple traveling fees just to get there. And then once you did, your goods would be subjected to heavy taxation by the lords. On the other hand, feudalism was a huge barrier to early industry. Capitalists uh, wanted to hire people to work in their factories, but feudal land relations uh, prevented this. Under feudalism, the peasantry is, is tied to the land, meaning that uh, they're not allowed to leave. Meaning, in turn, that very few people were able and free to work in the cities. Uh, both of these elements served as the, the economic factors for the French Revolution. The revolutionaries seized political power in order to knock down the economic fetters of feudalism. Marx described in the manifesto, in one word, the feudal relations of property became no longer compatible with the already developed productive forces. They became so many fetters. They had to be burst asunder. They were burst asunder. And we can see here how the French Revolution was sparked by economic forces that needed a political expression in order to complete itself. Now, that being said, uh, you know, while the French Revolution proves that politics does play an important role, I think that it also proves that economics is still primary. I mean, think about the slogans of the French Revolution. They're the French peasants storm the Bastille chanting uh, free trade and industrial development. Um, no, obviously not. They chanted uh, liberty, fraternity, equality. The guiding ideas of the French Revolution were that of equality. The revolutionaries firmly believed that they were building a society uh, free of oppression and exploitation. But regardless of what their ideological motivations were, 
it doesn't negate the fact that it was objectively a capitalist revolution. And capitalism is exploitative and unequal by its very nature. The French Revolution failed to really implement its ideals, not because the revolutionaries didn't believe in them hard enough, but because the conditions of the time couldn't allow for anything but a capitalist revolution. Now, even then, the ideology of the revolution actually did play an economic role. The bourgeoisie was a, a tiny minority, too small to lead a revolution on its own. They needed to win the support of the pe peasantry and early working class, um, and these slogans uh, fulfilled that role. Now, once capitalism uh, knocked down feudalism and began to develop, it became, uh, in my opinion, the highest expression of class society's contradictions. Because on one hand, uh, compared to feudalism, it was enormously progressive. It tore down the old feudal property relations through a wave of revolution across Europe and freed people from serfdom. Once that was accomplished, it carried out one of uh, it carried out the most rapid development of the productive forces in human history. I mean, the economic progress that has taken place in the past uh, 200 years alone dwarfs anything that took place under any past system. But this was all built on the back of unparalleled oppression. While the peasants were freed from serfdom, they were forced into the factories and found that their lives as workers uh, wasn't much better. In some ways, it was even worse for them. Now, once it began to spread outside of Europe, capitalism decimated the world through colonization and committed atrocity after atrocity. It would take, uh, I think, multiple presentations just like this um, to cover all of capitalism's crimes. But as Marx put it, uh, capital comes into existence stripping from blood and dirt from every pore. But now, even the once progressive elements of capitalism have transformed into their opposite. Capitalism no longer brings forward production, but it is itself a massive fetter. Market competition used to be a progressive force in that it genuinely did force capitalists to innovate for a period. But every competition has a winner you know, we're no longer living in an age of free markets, but under monopoly capitalism, where a small and ever-shrinking layer of CEOs and bankers control the entire global market. Production isn't carried on on the basis of what we need, but on what's profitable. And oftentimes, what's most profitable is also the most wasteful and inefficient. You know, the world market is experiencing a a massive crisis of overproduction in things like oil and smartphones. In Canada, you have the massive contradiction of the most overinflated housing market in the world while still having a homeless population. That's absurd. I think uh, COVID-19 has really exposed this reality far better than anything else could. The pandemic could have been halted, or at the very least dramatically lessened in its early stages. If we had a real internationally coordinated lockdown at the very beginning of all of this, things would be back to normal by now. Why didn't that happen? Solely because of private ownership. You know, the bosses weren't willing to let a real sufficient lockdown happen because it would have cut into their profits. 
governments of virtually every country worldwide worked against the advice of every serious professional health body in the world just to keep profits going. And this came at massive expense to working class people. As of uh, January, these aren't even the most recent figures, uh, the combined wealth of the 10 richest people in the world grew 540 billion through the pandemic, which would have been enough to buy vaccines for the entire world population. Now on the flip side, the working class lost $3.7 trillion through the pandemic and 114 million people lost their jobs. Now this isn't even to mention the hundreds of thousands of working people who got sick and died because they're forced to come to work during a global pandemic. Now, if, if this is enough to convince you that capitalism is a source of backwardsness, I, I really have no clue what will. But as much as capitalism creates uh, pain and misery, it also creates the seeds for its own downfall. It creates its own gravediggers, you know, you could say. The working class is not only the economic class with the interest in overthrowing capitalism, but also the ability to do so. Capitalism has created a class of billions of people thrown together into modern workplaces where they hold the levers of the economy in their hands, uh, oftentimes, literally. Now, this gives them extraordinary power. If there is a strike of Walmart workers in the US, the American economy would come to a total halt. If there is a general strike in Beijing, the world economy would come to a halt. And this is why Marxism focuses so much on the working class. Not out of any kind of uh, you know, romanticization, but because workers have the literal power to take control of the economy for themselves. Throughout Marx's writings, he spends an incredible amount of time focusing on individual struggles of workers, because these struggles serve as the generalization of the main lessons we can learn in the fight against capitalism. Historical analysis is how he developed the communist political platform. Now, he didn't sit in his office, divorced from the real movement on the ground, and just sort of laid out an abstract idea of what he thought communism should look like to him. Uh, no, he understood that the working class is the revolutionary class under capitalism. So he studied the workers' movements themselves to understand what form communism will take. Now, uh, in particular, he studied the Paris Commune. For those of you who may not know, uh, the Paris Commune was the first ever workers' revolution where the Paris workers heroically took power and held it for about a month. Although uh, quite short-lived, it provided enormous lessons, and its program is still very radical by today's standards. The Commune declared its aim as uh, ending the anarchic and ruinous competition be between workers for the profit of the capitalists and the dissemination of socialist ideals. They eliminated special privileges for state officials, limited their pay to that of a skilled worker, and held all of them to right of recall. Standing armies, separate and apart from the people, were abolished. Homes and public buildings were requisitioned for the homeless. You know, he used all of this to understand how a worker state will form itself after the working class is taking power. Marx pointed 
to the Paris Commune to say, this is the indicator of a future society. This is the indicator of the next world system. And uh, this is the same method that we still hold true today. This is why we study all working class movements and revolutions in detail. This is why the school's agenda is what it is. To highlight the historical lessons that can be taken from these movements and apply them to the living movement today. I think this uh, whole presentation really begs a particular question. What does this all mean for us? What can we do? In other words, what's the role of the individual in history? Now, to answer that question, there's another view of history that I think I should address. Many of you may be familiar with uh, this idea called great man theory. You know, it kind of puts forward that history is spurred, spurred on by the independent action of supposedly great individuals. Now, there's actually a very reactionary implication behind this. It implies that the masses, that all of the oppressed layers of society have no real agency. You know, they're just the passive recipients of charismatic individuals. You see this so very quite clearly when people talk about the rise of, of Hitler. How are we taught that the fascists came to power in Germany? Hitler was just the super charismatic sweet talker who was cunning enough to convince the German workers just to give up their rights without a fight. It's a very popular interpretation, but it's one that ignores any of the conditions of Germany at the time. And one that also very disrespectfully ignores how hard the German workers fought to try to keep Hitler out of power. Now, it's a, it really is a viewpoint that represents the ideas of the ruling class, who see the masses as just something to, to rule and lord over. Now, we as Marxists uh, don't believe that this is how history works. We'd actually argue basically the opposite. It's not that great individuals create history, but it's history that creates great individuals. Now, a very good uh, example we can look at is Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, he's the uh, kind of the poster boy for great man theory. There are more books written on him than any other historical figure. Historians almost seem to have a fetish for the guy. But one thing you may not know is that he almost died before he took power. Just two days before his coup, he fell off his horse and hit his head and fell into a coma. Now, imagine if he never woke up and he just died from the fall. Now, what do you think would have happened? Would France have stayed exactly how it was before Napoleon took power? Or do you not think that the general political process that was happening at the time would have kept going and would have found a new Napoleon. Now, maybe that Napoleon wouldn't have been as good at his job. You know, we don't deny that talented individuals can come into the forefront and play an enormous role. That's obviously true. But what we deny is that they're the decisive changing element in history. Napoleon became Napoleon because he had the skills suited him to be Napoleon. Now, he's sort of the, the, the right guy in the right place at the right time with the right qualities. But in his absence, history would have found a substitute. 
Obviously, kind of the reverse statement is also very much true. Napoleon would have never gotten to power if the conditions for his rule uh, didn't already exist. But even once Napoleon got into power, uh, he wasn't just free to bend society how he wanted it to. Individuals make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They don't make history under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances handed to them by higher forces. And we can understand this better by just understanding the limitations of our own lives. Now, we all have a relative degree of freedom in our life, but we are still forced by conditions outside of our control to live life in a certain general way. If, you know, like the vast majority of people in this society, you are part of the working class, without shares and investments to your name that you can live off of, then you have no real choice but to work for a wage in order to put food on the table. Now, you might have a, a certain amount of freedom as to who you work for, you know, depending on your job and circumstances. But ultimately, you have to sell your labor to a capitalist if you want to survive. Now, even the most uh, intelligent, most charismatic and strongest people aren't completely free agents, but are constrained by the material conditions social relations, and economic forces of their time. Now, some have criticized this as fatalist. They'll say that Marxism argues humans are just blind puppets to historical forces and that socialism is inevitable. But again, that's not true at all. Marxism is the furthest thing from fatalist. Now, I think this is proven by the life of Marx himself. He wasn't just some academic. You know, he worked tirelessly in, in multiple different organizations to try to help build a viable communist movement. I don't think he would have bothered if, you know, he was a fatalist. The fact that he did put in the effort uh, implies he believed in a certain level of agency. You know, there's obviously no omnipotent force called history that stands outside of and apart from humanity and forces its will on us. History is, is nothing but people pursuing their own aims. But it's through people's interactions with one another that these great historical laws materialize. Now, understanding that, we can say that individuals absolutely can make an impact on history. Now, the relationship between history and the individ individual is, again, similar to the relationship between, between the base and the superstructure. Ultimately, our economic conditions set the stage for us, and our historical circumstances hem in how far we can go. But in turn, through our own action in decisive moments, we can assert our influence on history and go on to reshape our economic and historical conditions. Now, uh, I think the classic example of this is the Russian Revolution. It wasn't Lenin or Trotsky or any other individual Bolshevik who created the revolution. It was the Russian working class itself. A revolutionary movement to that scale was, to be honest, inevitable even before the Russian communists started organizing. 
the conditions of revolts are baked into capitalist society. At a certain stage, at a certain point, the working class will realize the terrible condition that it's in, and it will rise up against it. What the Bolsheviks did was they provided the necessary leadership for the working class to take power. They understood that it was only a matter of time before the working class revolted, so they spent their time putting together the necessary tactics, political program, and slogans to help the working class succeed. Now, there eventually would have been a Russian revolution, and this revolution would have chosen some other leadership had the Bolsheviks not been around. But in the absence of a political party with a worked out plan to take power and the practical ability to lead the movement to victory, it's very unlikely, next to possible in, in my opinion, that the revolution would have succeeded. The, the need for a Bolshevik party has been proven countless times in, in just the past few years alone. We've seen revolutionary movement after revolutionary movement rise and fall in countries all over the world. Colombia, Lebanon, Sudan, and Haiti, just to name a few, would take uh, way too long to try and name them all, even if I even could. You know, in the United States, just last summer, you had what I think is safe to say, the biggest mass movement in American history. The workers in all these countries could have taken power, but they didn't. And the reason why they didn't is because none of these movements had a clear, worked-out political program or revolutionary leadership. Now this, of course, isn't the fault of the working class. But a plan to take power isn't something that can be prepared on the fly. No, it needs to be consciously prepared in advance. For revolution to take place, workers need to not only be aware of their oppression, which I think is something most workers are plenty aware of today, but it needs to be fully aware of its class position. It needs to understand that the reason it's oppressed is because of capitalism, and that the only way to overcome it is to take political power into its own hands. They need to not just be ready to fight, but they need to have a plan for how to fight and have a plan to transform society after they win. That's ultimately the utility of historical materialism. It gives us the tools needed to prepare that program in advance so that they can provide it during a revolutionary opportunity. And that really is fundamentally the task of the Marxist party. For us to analyze history through a scientific lens so that we can understand the position of the working class, so that we can study all past revolutions and working class movements to understand the lessons encased within them. And most importantly, to build an organization unified around these ideas so when a revolutionary opportunity comes, we can help lead the movement to victory. Now, no one is going to build this unless we do. So if you've liked what you've heard and you want to help in ending this, this horrible system once and for all, I appeal for you to join. Now, I think that history is in our favor, but sometimes history needs a bit of a push. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. 
we actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.